right, well, good morning again for those who are joining us a little later today. We welcome you to our church here at 59th Street. And again, today is Pentecost Sunday, so we're actually going to be taking a brief break uh, from our sermon series, Shema. We'll pick that up next week, and we'll actually wrap it up next week as well. But today is Pentecost Sunday, and it is an incredibly important day to celebrate uh, because this is the day where, historically, the disciples were given the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, where they are given a down payment, uh, so to say, for their heavenly inheritance. And this is also a gift that we share as well, that we all have a down payment for our heavenly inheritance. And what we're going to be looking at shortly is how exactly this spirit dramatically changes the life of believers. And I remember when I received the Holy Spirit, um, I thought my life would change dramatically. And of course, to an extent, it did. Um, However, some things still did not change in my life. Uh, There was obviously still sin in my life. Uh, My spiritual life would ebb and flow with these joyful peaks, but also these extremely deep valleys where I would question uh, whether God even existed. And in Christianity, this is a very common occurrence, and this is actually known as the now, but not yet tension. The kingdom is here now, but not yet in its fullness. And these two things are are tied in tension in our lives and in the world. And for me, uh, one example of this now, but not yet tension that hits home, for me at least, um, is the story of Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Uh, now, when you first meet Aragorn in, in the first movie, in the books or in the movies, um, he actually, you know, he looks like a total psychopath, right? <laughs> he looks like he just ran out of the woods. And he's, you know, he's disheveled, he's dirty, he looks like he's about to fight anyone he sees. Uh, but one of the secrets that is actually unveiled to the audience is that this disheveled rogue, this Aragorn, He's actually a descendant of an ancient king named Isildur, uh, which makes Aragorn the rightful heir to the kingdom of Gondor, uh, where this throne has actually set empty for generations um, as the people of Gondor waited for the return of Isildur's heir, for the rightful king, for for this guy on the left. And in the movies, there is always a constant tension between Aragorn accepting his status as a king or not. By the third movie, hopefully you all watched it, so this is not much of a spoiler. Um, By the third movie, Aragorn finally accepts his status as the rightful king of Gondor. And you see him there on the right looking a little less disheveled, a little less like a psychopath. Uh, But the thing is, once Aragorn, he accepts this new status as the king, as the king of Gondor, he began to live a life of tension. This ruler of Gondor, he did not have an army. He did not have a land. Um, He basically still lived in the wilderness, bouncing from camp to camp, from stronghold to stronghold. He had no army. He literally had no kingdom. So how could you call this man a king? Uh, The only army that he actually had was the fellowship, the brotherhood, with a wizard, four hobbits, an elf, and a dwarf. And so for Aragorn, he lived in this now-but-not-yet tension. He is the king of Gondor, but he's not king yet. And so throughout the entire trilogy, uh, we basically see how this king, how he lives out his kingship with no kingdom. Uh, We see how Aragorn tries to figure out what it means to be a king in exile, uh, to straddle between two worlds, 
uh, one where he is a king and one where he's a ranger who just wanders around in the wilderness. And in Scripture, uh, or actually in the Scripture passage we're going to read shortly, we're going to see how we, as Christians, we actually share in a very similar dilemma, uh, how we're also given a new status, yet we also straddle between two worlds, uh, not quite fully in one or the, either, uh, or the other, uh, where we live in a constant tension of now, but not yet. So let's actually take a look at that in our passage today from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. I guess it is. Uh, and it reads, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit... Yes, that's correct. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, so that we may also share in his glory. Now, one of the first things we see in this passage is that there's actually a pre-existing tension already, uh, the tension of both worlds, between God's kingdom and also between the kingdom here on earth. Um, so today, let's take a look at that, actually, with the tale of two spirits, which brings us to our first sermon point today. Uh, now, before these verses we read, Paul actually talks at length earlier in, uh, you know, basically throughout the entirety of Romans 8. He talks about the spirits of flesh or the spirits of the world compared to the spirits of God. And one of the first things we learn is that the spirit of this world leads to slavery and bondage. Uh, a few Sundays ago, I mentioned how once sin entered into the world, it did not leave humans partially broken or somewhat broken, it actually makes us entirely broken. Our minds cannot help but intentionally follow what is false over what is true. Um, and as sure as winter follows summer, we can be sure that we will all at one point or another experience anguish or deep grief due to circumstances outside of us or circumstances inside of us. Our desires and our choices are also not in agreement with what God thinks is right and good. And the problem is that ever since we learned the difference between good and evil, we cannot help but to do evil. And so as sure as I am that the sun rises on the east and sets on the west, is as sure as I am that we will all sin one way or another by the end of this day, whether by thoughts or deed, all of us, myself included. Uh, we cannot help not to sin because we are all enslaved to sin. And because we're all enslaved in sin, this also leads us to experience anxiousness and fear uh, because we know we cannot help but to sin, and we also realize that we might even sin intentionally, knowing that this is wrong. And the thing is, most people, uh, they believe that they will be held accountable for all of their wrongdoings. Uh, even amongst non-Christians that I know uh, or that I meet, there's a common understanding that there is a price to pay for wrongdoing. That even if there doesn't exist a God out there, that there's some sort of force in the universe that balances out our wrongdoing by punishing people, by bringing it back to them, whether that's karma or whatever. That if you sow evil and wrongdoing, 
that you will reap judgment in return. And so even non-Christians understand this. And so the thing is, what are people? What are people to do when they are ruled by the spirit of this world? What happens is that they have to work harder at being good. They try to balance out their wrongdoing by doing more good deeds. But the issue is that the debt of sin is a price that we cannot pay no matter how many good deeds we do. Why? How come? Because holiness can only be born out of God's Holy Spirit. Any work that is not born of God's Spirit will never be able to satisfy God's criteria of holiness. And so any work that is not born of God's Spirit is an imitation. It is a copy of holiness. It is, in, it is basically, in essence, counterfeits holiness. And so this is what the spirit of this world looks like. Well, what does the spirit of God look like then? And the first thing is that whereas the spirit of the world brought slavery, bondage, and death, the Holy Spirit instead brings freedom and brings life. We're now free from the powers of sin that brings death and destruction, and we're now granted eternal life. Uh, but through the Holy Spirit, we also step into a new realm. We step into a new reality, into God's reality, into God's kingdom, where we're inspired by the Holy Spirit to be life-giving, just as God has been life-giving to us by giving us eternal life. So not only are we given life, but rather than suffering from anxiousness or fear that comes from condemnation, we are also now at peace. Uh, we're at peace with ourselves first, knowing that we don't have to work hard, we don't have to be good enough, we don't have to be holy enough to earn salvation, but rather holiness and salvation is something that is freely given. But more importantly, we're also at peace now with God as well, that we are no longer his enemies. We're no longer afraid of the judge of the universe, but rather we find security instead. Because whereas we once tried to imitate or copy his holiness, uh, when we had the spirit of this world through the Holy Spirit, we don't have to copy. We're given holiness itself. And so we see that we, who once rebelled against God and set ourselves against him as his enemies, we're now instead called the children of God, uh, which brings us to our second sermon point today, children of God. And if you take a look at verse 15, uh, we see that as opposed to receiving a spirit that brings slavery and bondage, Paul tells us that the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. And adoption, it's, such a, it's actually a very accurate picture of what our new relationship with the Father is like. Um, adoption in Jesus' time is actually one of the greatest honors an orphan can receive. An orphan without any parents basically had no chance of survival, right? They're obviously, they're too young to do any sort of meaningful work. And so how did they survive? They had to steal to survive. They had no future. They had no chance of an education. And so adoption was a gracious act by parents where they would receive a child and bestow upon this orphan all the legal rights, all the privileges that a natural child would have. And so when we are adopted as the children of God, we are also given a new status and a new identity. And most people, I think sometimes even Christians, they, they don't understand how absolutely you know, bonkers, how absolutely insane this is for us to be given the status of children of God. 
Because not only are we, are we counted as one of God's chosen people, like the Israelites, but we actually now gain a status that is equal to Christ himself. You know, obviously, we're not God, but we are now the brothers and the sisters of God himself. We're not slaves in the kingdom of God. We're not relegated to a lower class. God literally, he went all out into incorporating us as the full members of his family, where we get to partake of all the same privileges that Jesus, the Father's only begotten Son, the same privileges that Jesus enjoyed. And so we see that when God adopted us, he did not take half measures. He went all out into receiving us into his kingdom. And the thing is, you know, I, I often wonder this, can you actually imagine a greater honor than that? If you really think about it for a moment, can you actually imagine a greater honor than that? To be called the literal, not, not, this is not metaphors, this is not you know, figurative language, to be called the brother and sister of Christ, to be called a child of our Father in heaven. And the thing is, the moment you understand, the moment you accept such a status, when you accept this title, who we are fundamentally as a person changes, it shifts. We slowly begin to realize that all the things that we thought mattered in this world, they begin to feel so small in comparison to who we now are as the children of God. Our political affiliations become secondary to our status as children of God. Our work and our vocation are no longer the single most defining aspect of our lives. All the things we have done to try to give our life meaning and purpose, they all pale in comparison to the worth that is given to us by God. And so we slowly, as we understand this, we slowly begin to drop these things from our identity, whether it is our political affiliation, our job, our pride, our wealth, we begin to pronounce, we actually begin to experience a profound freedom. We begin to drop these things. When we drop these old statuses, these old identities, we begin to realize that this new status, it actually allows us to think of what life is like under a new kingdom. It makes us think of what life is like where we are not defined by what the world thinks is important. It allows us to think literally outside the box because we as Christians, we have actually literally stepped outside of this current reality and into a new reality, into God's kingdom. And so when you think of it in this perspective, how does life in Christ inform us about how we are to use our money if money is no longer the status that holds us, or the status that gives us meaning? How does life in Christ change when we look at the purpose of work? And these are questions I, I would encourage you to wrestle with these questions throughout the week, but I think it's, it's important questions to ask. And so we see that as we are set free from our old status and given a new one, our hearts begin to change. We begin to see that our faith in God, it's not just some verses we recite, it's not just making sure our theology is correct, although that is very important. Alongside our knowledge, alongside our wisdom, faith is also an experience in our hearts. We're to express our faith through worship as, as you know, even Paul says, as we cry out to God, Abba, Father, as a response to being adopted as the children of God. So we see that this new status as the children of God, 
it impacts every aspect of our lives. And so just as sin has made us totally broken, when we receive Christ, when we receive this new status as the children of God, as the adopted children of God, we're now made totally whole through God's grace. Totally whole. And so because we are now adopted as the children of God and given a new status, we're now also called the co-heirs with Christ, which brings us to our final sermon point today, co-heirs with Christ. And the word heir that that, uh, Paul actually uses in this passage, um, it can actually be translated also as inheritor, basically means the same thing. To be an heir is to inherit something, right? But the thing with being an heir or an inheritor, it actually brings a very interesting tension into our lives because an inheritance, you know, you don't receive your inheritance now, right? Inheritance is something that you receive sometime in the future. And so we know that as the children of God, we are now stepping into a new realm, into God's kingdom. However, we also realize that our lives are still lived here on earth, right? Like Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, we are stuck between two worlds. On the one hand, we have one foot already in the kingdom of God as his children and as co-heirs with Christ, yet our other foot is still in this world. And for us as Christians, this leads to a tension, right? Where we feel like we're pulled back and forth on each side. Uh, We feel like we're neither here nor there, And like the Israelites in the wilderness who are led by God by smoke and fire, but they have not yet reached the promised land, uh, today we are led by the Spirit of God, but we have yet to experience our inheritance in the full. Uh, Our bodies are not imperishable. We do not have perfect holiness. We do not have perfect fellowship with each other. We don't have perfect fellowship even with God. And so we feel like we are torn. On the one hand, we're given this extreme, this great promise, but yet at the same time, we still experience all forms of suffering. And of course, Christians around the world, right, they experience suffering from persecution, but because we all still live in a broken world, we still experience all the daily troubles of life. Uh, We have the spirit of joy, but yet life is still filled with anxieties, with illnesses, bereavement, scarcity in all its form, whether it's famine, inflation, whatever have you. We all will one day experience death itself. And so sometimes as Christians, there can exist a deep feeling of dissatisfaction in our souls. Uh, We know of the glorious future that awaits us, but if we're honestly speaking, it just feels so terribly far away with all the daily struggles of life. But the beautiful message that Paul brings for us here today uh, is that we are, sorry, but the beautiful message that Paul brings for us who are caught in this now but not yet tension is that suffering is not without purpose. Paul tells us that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings nor that in order that we may also share in his glory. To share in Christ's suffering is, as Karl Barth says, to encounter God as Jeremiah and Job encountered him, to love him when we are only aware of the roughness of his hand. Suffering is to encounter Christ on the cross 
who experienced the full magnitude of human suffering from all of history, both past, present, and future, but still sought to love the Lord with all of his heart, even till his dying breath, his last breath. And so as we share in Christ's suffering, we know that we also will share in his glory as well, as we are raised with new imperishable bodies that, that will one day live in a new heaven, in a new earth. So we see that suffering no longer becomes a thing that we must shamefully hide from others or shamefully hide even from ourselves, but rather it becomes a mark of honor, knowing that we share in Christ's suffering. And as we share in Christ's suffering, we also share in his glory, not because we have earned it some way or somehow, but rather it is an inheritance, a gift freely given out of the Father's love, an unshakable and eternal promise that we share with Christ as his brothers and sisters and as his co-heir. And before we, we move into a period of prayer and communion, where we'll shortly take of the, partake of the bread and the cup, um, I would like to share with you all an excerpt from a poem on pain, on suffering, uh, written by Cahil Gibran, a Lebanese-American poet. And this is an excerpt that says, A woman spoke, saying, Tell us of pain. And he said, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so you must know pain. It is the bitter potion by which the physician within you heals your sick self. Therefore, trust the physician and drink his remedy in silence and tranquility. For his hand, though heavy and hard, is guided by the tender hand of the unseen. And the cup he brings, though it burns your lips, has been fashioned of the clay which the potter has moistened with his own sacred tears. Let us come together in prayer. Lord, we come before you today as your beloved children. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the unconditional love that you have given us, that through the death of your Son we have been forgiven, and that through his resurrection we have been given the inheritance of eternal life. We thank you for this free gift for us. And so as we come together today, Lord, we, we ask that you will encourage us and give us strength as we share in the suffering of your son. Uh, we acknowledge before you that we do not suffer for no reason, but we suffer to ultimately to share in Christ's glory. So open our eyes and our pain to find you. That through the cup of suffering before us that burns our lips, that we may know that it has been fashioned by the tears and the blood of your Son. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In your most precious Son's name we pray. Amen.